Here were the future governors of England, the beings who were to carry on the vast machine of society. Here were the landlord, the politician, the soldier. James Matthew... As his mouth moved to form the words of his father's name, his courage failed him. And in that split instant, the darling boy suddenly knew to whom he was talking. Everyone had heard about Lord B's bastard son coming to Eton. Right, James. Well, you might have to add a B to the O.S. after your family name then, won't you? B for bastard? Bad form, James thought, watching Darling and his accomplice join the stream of Eton Blues. James entertained the mental image of his umbrella passing cleanly through the Darling boy's brisket and out his backside with a perfectly executed capo-ferro thrust. The fencing master who had tutored James in the skills of the sword during his childhood would have applauded his good form, even with an umbrella. James dismissed Aunt Emily at the doors of his residence, Godolphin House, a looming brick affair that was to be his home for the next few years. He kissed her politely on both cheeks, which was the absolute limit of any display of affection James would allow. Even if she was not his real aunt, she had always cared for him and raised him with a mother's love. Every holiday while he waited for his father to arrive for even the briefest of visits, Aunt Emily always remained cheerful and hopeful. The boy could count the number of times he'd actually met his father on one hand with a frightening majority of his ten fingers never having to be used. He's not coming, is he, Em? Some urgent business at the House of Lords today, I'm afraid, Jimmy. How unusual. But he sent these with his love. Aunt Emily presented James with an official envelope, carrying the official crest of the House of Lords, and a leather purse tucked full of shillings and half-crowns. James weighed both in his hands, deliberating. Letter, money, good form, bad form... If his father was connected to nobles and nobility, as James had been raised to believe was true, then all he had experienced of this nobility was neglect and an allowance. I won't be needing his money. James returned the purse. When his distraught aunt resisted, James firmed his hand around hers, pressing the purse into them. Oh, please take it, James. It's your allowance. You'll need it. Her eyes were sharp and bright with tears. Without Aunt Emily... James would be completely alone in the world. Yet there he was, severing his last tie with the one person who cared about him. He was at Eton. He was to be an Eton Blue. From here on, I will take care of my wants and needs my own way. James ripped the envelope into two pieces and presented it back to her. There is no name or address on this envelope. How am I to know this letter is for me? By this time, Aunt Emily was acutely aware that several students moving their worldly belongings into Godolphin House had slowed their progress and were lingering about to watch. James actually played to the idle audience, openly enjoying himself. In the future, if my father wishes to communicate with me, he should have the courtesy to pen my full name on the envelope as any lord might be expected to do when communicating with his son. One rather rounded Oppidan set his bags down and applauded. Ripping! Absolutely ripping! Could you give my gov a bit of the same? Smashing! His name was Roger, an Oppidan who had been at Eton since age six. Eton blood, they called a lifer. As he was most often jolly, James was soon to anoint him with the name Jolly Roger, the one and only true friend there ever was to be in his lonely ascent to the top. Jolly Roger assisted James with his trunk up the winding narrow stairs to the top of Godolphin House and James' small garret room. Roger Peter Davies of Kensington. Glad to meet you. The fud-faced, 
red-headed rounder let his introduction hang in the air, waiting for James to catch on. James Matthew, I don't need your help, but thank you all the same. That's it? That's all you've got? James Matthew? Is that your whole name? Actually, I prefer Jazz. King Charles II always signed his name Chaz. I rather like that. Quick, precise. King Jazz it is, then. Jolly Roger overdid his bow as he opened the door, revealing the tiny room that was to be the king's new palace. Roger was suddenly not so jolly at the mess inside. Someone had been there before them, from the look of the wet paint on the bare walls. It was not the colour that stopped Roger in the doorway, but the words the fresh paint spelled out. James Matthew Bastard, O.S.B. I guess you do have a last name, King Jazz. Roger laughed, making a trifle of the slur against James. I guess I do, my jolly Roger. James wiped a long, tapered finger through Bastard. Then, looking in the mirror, smeared it carefully on his face, just as the Aborigines in Australia, the Africas and the Americas customarily did before going into battle. The combination of piercing forget-me-not eyes, dark curls and face paint all at once cut quite a startling figure in the tiny room. Swank! Topping swank! This was the highest praise Jolly Roger could give to James. James caught himself fighting back what can only be described as a smile. Here James had come up to Eton with the full intention of making no friends, and yet he had managed somehow to find this one. Good form, Jolly Orr. Being eager to put things right for this unusual new arrival, Jolly Orr offered to fetch the house matron to clean the offending wall. It's not a rotten den, King Jazz. We'll fit it up nicely. But James did not want the offending wall touched. Leave it. It happens to be the truth. He preferred the words be allowed to remain intact as a reminder. The end, he added after a moment. James punctuated many of his declarations with the end. It had the effect of dropping the curtain on a moment he did not want the world to forget. James Matthew Bastard, OSB. Whenever the house matron stopped by to pick up or deliver James' laundry, the kindly woman would fold his clean items into his wardrobe and put fresh linens on his bed, being careful to avert her eyes from the truth on the wall. James liked to think of this controversial wall as the beginning of his notorious reign at Eton. Until his arrival at this seat of higher learning, the most persons young James had ever dined with at once totaled the enormous sum of three, himself, of course, Aunt Emily, always, and on two, no, four occasions, his father had made an appearance, but he was hardly there, so racked he was with fear of being discovered. Then there were M's cats, who did not quite qualify as humans, although Shelley, Byron and Victoria were more human in many ways than the majority of the people populating the earth. Often an associate of Aunt Emily's would attend, bringing along a ravenous appetite, eating every crumb in M's cupboard, including whatever James was not fleet enough to grab for himself. There were colourful characters from the theatre and the opera, painted ladies reeking of penny perfume, who appeared as garish marionettes in the candlelight as they sang arias. And the men, oiled and bucked up by M's sparkling presence and the sipping whisky secreted in their tea, performed the great soliloquies of Shakespeare. James sometimes recited his favourite passages of Richard III instead of his prayers at night. Now is the winter of my discontent. I pray the Lord my soul be bent. It was James' own version. 
That first night at Eton, when Jolly Roger fetched James reluctantly from his garret exile and coaxed him down the stairs, past the wall of trophies and colours won by the boys of Godolphin House, and into the long, narrow dining hall, the sight of thirty-nine boys all seated along opposite sides of a great oak table, while five Oppidan underclass men scummed to and from the kitchen, serving, cleaning, and taking abuse from the prefects in their bright waistcoats, would have been enough to send a weaker boy fleeing. But not King Jazz. Even as all heads turned to embrace his entrance with thinly disguised agitation at his appearance, so Arnitonian was the boy, he was not deterred from making his way toward an empty seat at the far end of the great table. He looks like a baby who's grown out of his diapers. The voice was loud enough for James to hear, along with several others. He realized the comment addressed the fact that he was not wearing tails, as was every other boy in the hall who had reached the height of five feet four inches. James was fifteen years of age, and much taller than that. Nor did he wear the telltale wide, stiff, white as sinless snow collar that enslaved each boy's neck. James was still clad in a short-jacketed velvet suit, with pants that buckle below the knee in the style worn by much younger and shorter boys. And, of course, his long black curls, bombolating with each step he took, caused many to delight in the idea of shearing them from his head. James gave his locks a good shake as he sat in an open chair between two upper-class men, making sure they each received an annoying brush. The legs of his chair scraped an aged oak floor as he righted himself at the table and began helping himself to the sea of food. You were late, James Matthew, whatever your last name is. The sound of the voice rankled James. Sitting at the head of the table in the seat of power was Arthur Darling, captain of the house. My apologies. I normally dine alone. James was never more sinister than when he was being polite. In my house... If you...